Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacy LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Sarah Pisano of Team Shelter USA, and I'd like to welcome her to the show. She's been a frequent visitor with us, so folks are interested in finding out about her history and how she got started in animal welfare. I recommend you go to the communitycatspodcast.com, go to the search bar and put in Pisano and all of the previous shows she's been on. will load right up and you can have a whole binge listen to Dr. Pisano and all her great thoughts and topics. But today, she'd like to share with us a new book that she She's just released. And so, Dr. Pisano, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for having me back, Stacey. I appreciate it. So the book is called The Best Practice Playbook for Animal Shelters, and you are fresh back from Expo, and I believe you released the book either a little bit before that or during Expo. Tell us all a little bit about this book and why you're just so excited about it. I'm over the moon excited because, you know, Stacey, a lot of us have been in animal welfare for decades and 30 years ago, boy, we didn't have much hope, right? So there was more euthanasia. Oh, I just got chills. There's more euthanasia (laughs) than life-saving. And so now to say to shelters and say to communities, hey, we figured it out. So this is not a pilot program. We just need you to embrace these philosophies and think a little bit differently. So that's why I'm so excited, truly. I've done over 100 assessments now in public shelters all over the country, and my work is focused on those shelters that are euthanizing the most cats and dogs. And what I found was we all are suffering. Those shelters are all struggling with the same issues. And the most amazing news is it's all the same solutions, regardless of where you are in the United States. I've been doing this every other week since 2013, visiting a shelter and doing assessments and writing these recommendations, Stacey, over and over and over. So I finally carved out the time. I got a sponsor. My main sponsor was Virox Technologies that I chose because I so believe in rescue And the Joni Bernard Foundation sponsored the grammatical editing and graphics. So that's how the playbook happened. Oh, that's great. It's fantastic. Now, you are saying that when you're doing these assessments on the, a small shelter or a large shelter, are you saying just municipal shelters or are you also talking about private shelters that don't have municipal contracts? I wrote the playbook for all shelters. So whether you're a private or a nonprofit, the same principles apply. And number one, Stacey, use your shelter space for animals who have no other options. And what I see is a lot of animals flooding into shelters with no mitigation or conversation about other options. Then we end up with overcrowding. Then we end up with a lot of infectious disease, et cetera, et cetera. So public or private, same philosophies. My work has mostly focused on the public shelters, right? Because that's where most of the euthanasia is. But then I also have worked with those private shelters that have municipal contracts. I've also done assessments for shelters, private shelters who are over 90%. And guess what? There's so much waste and there are still 
so many ways that we can work more efficiently and help more animals. So that's what's really exciting. I see and I think that what I bring to the table is saying, hey, wait a minute, people, we're wasting money and resources. Resources could be space in your shelter, staff time. It doesn't always have to be money, but it could be money. Let's use those in more productive ways, right? So that's what I bring to the table. One of the things that you talk about in some of the summaries in the book, you're talking about operating strategically. Are there key subheadings to that that you'd be willing to share with our listeners? Absolutely. And the first part is the stray hold. So A, why are we bringing animals into the shelter? Are there other options? And if we do bring them into the shelter, what are the stray holds? So a lot of times they're too long for dogs and we recommend three days because we know people recover their dogs. Those 20% of people that do reunify with their dogs does so within three days. With cats, that's not the case. Less than 2% of the stray, quote unquote, because there's no such thing as a stray cat, quote unquote strays aren't reunited. Less than 2% nationally of sheltered cats. And every shelter I go to, Stacy, same thing over and over. It's like Groundhog Day. <laughs> there should not be a stray hold. What we should be doing is not even taking those cats in the shelter, making sure they're sterilized, rabies vaccinated, and ear tip. And guess what? Return them home to their home location. Maybe I don't know who's feeding them, but the cat's 12 pounds. The cat's like, get out of my way. You know, people, you're like, you're interfering with my dinner time. And I know exactly where my dinner is tonight. 20 years ago, was I doing this? No, I thought it was the craziest thing. I was panicked because I didn't know who was feeding the cat. Mm -hmm. And the cat's like... I'm 12 pounds. Take me home. So there should be no stray hold. That is to me, and I say this to elected officials all the time, I say it's a scandalous waste of resources. And remember, I want every one of your listeners to know, don't be afraid to educate. We have to educate our elected officials. They don't know this stuff. They don't know about the 2% return to owner rate, I promise you. But you want to go in there, not about saving cats. You want to go in there and talk about what's important to them, saving money, not wasting money, and making sure their constituents are happy. And when we sterilize those cats and take away that nuisance mating behavior, I promise you, enforcement calls go down, your cat intake drastically decreases. I mean, it's a, it's a miracle only it's not. It's much easier than we thought it ever would be. How does that happen with owned cat spay neuter? I mean, I, I understand shelter neuter return and TNR and the necessities for that. But I would also think in order for a community to be successful, they should also offer some affordable spay neuter services for owned cats in the community. A hundred percent. So remember, my work is focused on shelters euthanizing the most. So my crisis intervention is at the point of intake. Now, if I can talk municipalities into funding targeted spay-neuter in the community, that's when the magic happens, right? So that means there is public funding, and we always want a combination of private money and public money to do targeted spay-neuter in the community. So certainly getting those cats proactively, especially from high intake areas, boy, that's when the magic happens a lot quicker. So yes, that's absolutely important. And when I work directly with the shelters, 
I look at it as a crisis intervention. What's my first priority and what's my second priority? But absolutely, we advocate for public-private funding for targeted spay-neuter. The one thing that's becoming really apparent in this conversation to me is that so many times in the past years, everybody's like, well, we did this with dogs. We figured it out for dogs. So why can't we do it for cats? The reality is the map for assistance for cats is a very different kind of operational map than for dogs in order to be successful. Is that the epiphany that we have going on here? Well, I still see a whole heck of a lot of improvement needed for dogs for sure. But you're right, cats live outcome are lagging behind. I think the mistake has been in the shelter system, we have treated dogs and cats the same with respect to the stray hold. Well, we have to hold the cat so their owners find them. And we know now because we have so much data nationally that that doesn't happen. But thank goodness, we live differently with cats in our society. So we're not going to do a shelter neuter return for dogs, but we live with cats differently. A lot of people let their cats in and out. So sterilizing them and putting them right back where they were found is an option. And it should be the only option as opposed to taking them into the shelter. So I think it's just we've actually now educated enough of our leaders in the shelter system to treat the cats differently with respect to that returning them and with respect to the stray hold. I shouldn't say most because there's still a lot of shelters, even over 90% that are holding for a stray hold. For a community that adapts these ideas and does a lot of shelter neuter return or return to field, are there other metrics that we can look at that would help us, I don't know, feel better at night that we are taking care of the needs of the cats in the community? Just sort of thinking about some metrics outside of the shelter that might just make everybody rest easy. Everybody is always worried. Well, if they're out there on the streets all by themselves, even if they are 12 pounds, how do we feel comfortable with that? Right. So first of all, I think we have to recognize our desire to be superheroes. So we see this cat outside and think, oh, he needs my help. He never needed our help to begin with. He wasn't lost. The good Samaritan was just doing what we've trained them to do. Now, why would you train somebody to take cats to a shelter that are not going to be reunified when probably half of Americans allow their cats in and out? So number one, letting go of our need to be a superhero when the cat did not need intervention. Two, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cats that have been through this program. In Jacksonville, almost 30,000 cats alone in that community have gone through this program. What happens in that community and every other? Here are the metrics. There's no increased uh, call for dead cats. There's decreased enforcement calls with respect to complaints about cats. There are now neighbors that had brought in cats from the neighborhood whose neighbors had cats that kept reproducing. Now those constituents went from being the ones that complain to the advocates for this program. So there are many metrics that show that this is actually the best thing to do. And what about the decreasing shelter intake? So that combined with we're not seeing more enforcement calls, complaints, all those things cruelty, neglect, or, or dead cats. So we're not seeing any of those things. In addition, the Center for Disease Control in their last rabies surveillance report showed that the incidence of rabies in cats is decreasing. Well, of course it is, because 
we have less cats outside and more of them vaccinated against rabies. So that makes sense. So I promise you and your listeners, I was so panicked about this program when it started back in 2007. And I promise you it's the best thing for the cats. What I think we should feel very uncomfortable about is taking cats into a shelter, housing them inhumanely, stressing them, getting them sick with upper respiratory, and a lot of times housing them with dogs, which happens in a lot of shelters still. That's what we should be concerned about, not returning them home. They know exactly where their home is. And as you and I know, a lot of them have many homes and all those people think it's their cat. Hey, everybody, Stacy here with the Community Cats Podcast. And I just wanted to let everybody know that early bird ticketing is open for our 2020 online cat conference, which will be on January 24th through the 26th. So we will get together on the evening of the 24th with Chelsea White, who has a YouTube show that's perfectly awesome. And then we will be getting together on the 25th and the 26th for two full days of jam-packed information all about community cats and community cat programs. So this is a virtual convention for anyone who'd like to help community cats. Please go to onlinecatconference.com to sign up today. Also, if you'd like to become an affiliate as a fundraiser for your organization, the information is right there on the website, as well as sponsorship opportunities. So I hope you'll check it out. Go to www.onlinecatconference.com and we look forward to seeing you then. So you talked about rabies. Disease is always a hot topic, especially with city council members and board of health officials. And how do you address that when you are talking about returning a lot more cats back into the community with regards to rabies, as well as other diseases that cats may have? That's a great question, but you touched on it, returning more cats. I'm not returning more cats. I'm returning a cat sterilized. When I do nothing, so in a community, an old school community that, for example, the ACOs are taking those cats into the shelter and they're ultimately getting euthanized for the most part, all those cats left behind reproduce. So that is a waste and there's no addressing the core issue of reproduction. But when I sterilize that cat and put them back, now I have a cat that is not going to reproduce and I continue to ripple out and sterilize whoever's in that area. I have less cats. So less cats over time means less risk of disease like groundworms or any intestinal parasites. But the truth is with any of those intestinal parasites anyway, wildlife pose a much greater threat. Now, I will say cat people need to work with the wildlife advocates, with the Audubon Society. You know, I've had situations where there was total animosity and nobody was talking. And I realized the feeding stations were right where these migratory birds were landing, no less endangered. They were feeding them right in that exact location. So we had to move the feeding stations and sterilize cats and all those things. But if we hadn't had that conversation, we wouldn't have come up with the solution, which was very simple move the feeding stations, right? And what I do in shelters is really about that single cat, one or two cats coming in the shelter. This is colony prevention. So we want colony prevention. And our second goal is colony stabilization, but it means less cats outside. So there's less risk of anything else. 
regarding FIV or feline leukemia and testing those cats. Have you run into those conversations with political officials? Yes. So that's a great question. And there's recommendations that come out of the University of Florida and California and looking at the incidence of FIV and leukemia. So Overall, we think it's about a 5% incidence, right? So we do not recommend testing when you are doing return to field, shelter new to return, TNR, any of that, because those diseases, for the most part, are transmitted because they're intact, whether it's through fighting or mating. And when you sterilize them, you drive that incidence down. Number two, if there's a cat that is sickly or has some sort of medical, we may test it just to make sure we don't have to address some other problems. But for the most part, when we've looked at, there's studies done to look at the incidence of medical problems, it's less than 1% that are too sick, ill, or injured to put back. So when you sterilize an FIV leukemia cat, you didn't even know they were positive, they're visually healthy, you put them back, they're not going to now spread it. And guess what? They live in a neighborhood where there's other positives anyway. We want everybody to focus on the sterilization and it's just not a productive use of resources, doesn't help our decision tree to just test them because it doesn't change the fact that we're going to put them back when they're visually healthy. So in the experience that you've had working with this hundred plus different organizations over the last several years, are there any other challenges and obstacles that you've run into dealing with a municipal shelter, working with public officials in being able to adjust to this new playbook? So I think that a lot of people that work at the shelter level or volunteers or rescue groups feel very intimidated about their elected officials. So they say things like, well, that's against our ordinance, so there's nothing that we can do. So when I go to meet those elected officials, whether it be commissioners, mayors, county attorneys, and I educate them about the 2%, and I show them the reflection in the data of their local shelter and field statistics, and I talk about their animal control officers and eliminating waste, it's like instantaneously they get it. I was at a shelter in Florida recently And I looked at field stats and I told the commissioner with confidence, look at what your ACOs are doing. 70% of the time they're wasting time and they're not dealing with animal and public safety. So again, we have to talk their language. We have to show them that what they're doing now is not efficient and we can help them eliminate waste and provide sustainable resolution and their constituents will be happy. So I want people to feel confident that they can, no matter who you are in this system and animal welfare advocacy, get the information, present the facts in a very professional way, not emotional, and educate your elected officials. And I've been able to change ordinances, over 20 ordinances right out of the gate. Now, Knoxville, Tennessee took a little bit longer, but today, actually, Stacy, Knoxville is, I'm sure, going to pass their community cat legislation. Awesome. <laughs> so, Dr. Pisano, I know we want everybody to go out and pick up a copy of Best Practice Playbook for Animal Shelters. That's a first step. But if there are organizations out there that are interested in doing one of these assessments or having some consulting, what does an assessment really entail? 
Right. So they can visit Team Shelter USA. There's a contact button there. If their shelter leaders or municipal leaders are interested in an assessment, I do research prior to coming on site. Well, first I, I present a proposal. And when I come on site, I already know their state laws, their local laws. I know their stats, shelter and field. I spend several days, most of the week in the shelter and meeting with municipal leaders. I spend a lot of time meeting with municipal leaders because, Stacy, my goal and the way I operate is to set up the foundation that defaults to success because the traditional shelter system defaults to failure. I spend a lot of time with the leaders really showing them how the foundation can be improved. And then they have the copy of the playbook because, again, these are all the same recommendations. And then after the assessment, I give them sort of a highlighted bullet point of, okay, here's the things we discussed. Here's what you're doing great in this section. And here's your opportunities for improvement. It's a very high-level, quick bullet point report. And then they have all the backup in the playbook. And the playbook is now sold on Amazon as of two weeks ago. So um, at Expo, I've already sold over a thousand and I signed 600 playbooks at Expo. It was so exciting. Thanks to Virox. I actually just joined 2019 and I have a Facebook page. So I hope everybody looks at my Facebook page, Team Shelter USA. They can see all the festivities and the presentations about the playbook. But I really hope, again, this playbook is written for everybody, no matter how you were involved, whether you're a volunteer, a rescue group, a shelter leader, a municipal leader, or a funder, this playbook is for you. Wow, that's great. It's a wonderful summary. Anything else in the playbook that you'd like to share with us before we close out? Yes, I think the most important thing in the playbook that I do is I tell you in this section, whatever that section might be, that ending euthanasia doesn't take years and it doesn't take millions of dollars. And I have a success story in each section. And I'm sure that people will recognize their own communities in those success stories. And the very first one, Anderson County, South Carolina, went from a 50% live outcome to over 90% in three months with no increase in budget, staff, or shelter space. And now, you know, two years later, they're still over 90%. So I think that the success stories are going to help people really understand and let go of their fears, Stacey, because this is just about changing our perspective. We're not talking about pilot programs here. We're talking about the answers that every single shelter and community has at their fingertips. So like in five years from now, what do you see happening for cats across the country? We see many shelters eliminating that stray hold, but that is, I think, still a huge barrier. Again, even shelters that have over 90%, some of them still have stray holds, but I do see a shift. So I do think that in five years, we will not be taking cats into shelters who were quote unquote found outside, right? Because they weren't lost to begin with. (laughs) And our shelters would be used for only animals who had no other option. Anything else you want to share with our listeners today? Just I know that the playbook and some of the ideas that I talk about are scary. Our first knee jerk is going to be, oh, we can't do that here because dot, dot, dot. 
got. I promise you that it works. And I promise you we're our own worst enemies and these self-imposed barriers need to be lifted. And when we do that, it's really miraculous what happens. Dr. Pizzotto, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. I'm thrilled that you're willing to come back to the show again and again. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show. And really, I hope we'll have you on again in the future. Thank you so much, Stacey. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 